0: I was uh, happy to find this picture today of various people in the world, and uh, it's really felt like I wanted to put it in front of everybody. Isn't it? Isn't it a great picture? Um, and I want to leave it up here, the whole uh, sermon today, so we'll be looking at the faces of children and adults from different nations, different cultures, uh, because our topic is loving our neighbors, all of them. And all of these people are neighbors to us. Uh, They may may not live next door to us, but they are neighbors. Uh, Even though they're so different than us, they are neighbors. So I want to encourage you to glance every once in a while at the screen and keep thinking about that as I preach from James 2 uh, this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for uh, your word. Uh, So many things that... that, uh, are found here that are treasures to us. That it is a resource uh, beyond compare. Um, and in this practical book of James, we have so many things that are are uh, practical for our daily lives and and how we live them and how we relate to other people. Pray that you would uh, bring our minds uh, to that topic today, and we would think about where we live and who is our neighbor. As we explore your word together today, Uh, as uh, newcomers to this church, as those who've been around for a while, or maybe even many years, we come together now to your word. Help us to hear from you today, I pray in Jesus' name. Most of us have heard the saying, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And no, Napoleon Dynamite did not say that originally. Some people might think that he did, but it was probably Will Rogers or Oscar Wilde. Uh, really people disagree where it started with. It really doesn't matter because the saying is true. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. First impressions are very important, right or wrong. So most of us hope that when we're meeting someone for the first time, we make a good one. <laughs> we we want them to feel drawn to us or feel like we're worthy of their attention or whatever we base uh, our first impressions on many factors and you know we we make these snap judgments about people very quickly don't we we meet them for the first time and we we size them up we say research shows that we do that in the first few seconds that that we meet someone for the first time in fact one study says it only takes 100 milliseconds to make that impression, make the first impression. Uh, We base it on age, uh, race, culture, language, gender, uh, physical appearance, accent, body posture, uh, speech patterns, just a whole bunch of different things. And all these things go into the equation. And in just a a little bit of time, we've we've kind of figured out who somebody is, we think. And we rarely change our assessment. Uh, Studies will show and once you make this first impression in, in, on somebody, they kind of stick with that. And, and you have to kind of overcome it later, maybe if it was a negative one. You have to prove them wrong. And, and we're not very willing to be proven wrong in this. That's why the first impressions that individuals give to others greatly influence how they're treated and viewed in many contexts of everyday life. Now, here's an interesting thing I found, that if we think someone is beautiful... We see them, we think, you're beautiful, you're handsome, you're attractive. We give preference to them from the very moment we meet them. Isn't that interesting? Psychologists call this the beautiful is good effect. And its effect is much stronger than any information we may receive about that person. It kind of overrides the other little red flags that come up, or or, or other information we may get. Unfortunately, this is how we've been conditioned in our culture, in our environment, to size people up. Now, it might be self-preservation that causes us to assess people so quickly, because we want to know whether they're a threat to us. Uh, maybe for some of us, it's just the fear of the unknown, fear of someone new, you know. Is this person possibly somebody that might harm me? That may be part of it, but whether that's part of it or not, we're concerned about our own safety or not, we often decide quickly whether we want to spend any time with this person or not, whether we want to continue the conversation. Do we want to give them our time and attention? Are they are they worthy of that, or should I move on? And this first impression decision is made quickly, and we act accordingly. Now, such decisions are not always accurate, are they? Do you find, uh, you know, you meet somebody, and you think, man, I, I'm not sure about this person. And then you find out they're one of the greatest people you've ever met. Um, you thought you sized them up pretty well, and then you found out, I was completely wrong on this. We had a guy here, some of you will remember, many years ago. His name was Tim Bentz. Anybody remember Tim Bentz? Tim Bentz was this, this big biker guy. He came in with these huge muscles, a lot of tattoos, and his shaved head was partially covered by a do-rag. He had this, this huge, bushy beard and kind of looked like this. This was not Tim, but I, I didn't have a picture of Tim. So I put up a guy that kind of, my first impression of Tim was this thought, oh my goodness, who is showing up to church this time? That's what I'm thinking. He came roaring up to, I think, our men's Bible study first in uh, Harley Davidson, and and uh, we made all kinds of assumptions about him based on this first impression. We couldn't believe that this guy even wanted to study the Bible. What's with that? But we found out he was an excellent student of the Word. He brought a lot of stuff in there because he had been spending a lot of time in God's Word. We thought he was was kind of the hellion, you know, the the guy that, oh, wow, what's he into? We find out he's a family man who is deeply committed to his family, working long hours to provide for their needs, and this gruff-looking exterior was deceptive. And I think he kind of liked that. (laughs) He liked fooling people. His name was Tim Bentz, initials TB, but he should have been called Teddy Bear. Because that's really what he was. I mean, this this guy hugged on people and loved on people. And after you got to know him, he was the easiest guy to be around you. Just loved being with him. First impressions, then, can be wrong. They're not the way to go. But they are valuable. Because they reveal something, not about them, but about us. Don't they? They reveal a lot about us. They reveal our prejudices and our biases, for one thing, helps us to see, why, why did I think that about him? Why, why did I just jump to a conclusion, to an assumption, to, you know, I've got it all figured out just because I'm looking at this guy. And then I was completely wrong. Beth Moore says this in her study of James. Some of you ladies have been through that. She said, left to ourselves, we're mud pies baking in the elements of preference and prejudice. We favor one, dismiss another. Entertain one, endure the other. A glance can garner respect or recoil. We stereotype, we assume, we speak of individuals as they and those kind. Our prejudices are buried so deep in our pores that we don't recognize them wrapped in our own skin. Pretty good words. Many of us live by our prejudices every day, whether we admit them or not. So when we get this topic, loving our neighbors, all of them, brings us kind of face-to-face with some of that. And even as Christians, living in God's grace, we may carry along our prejudices deep inside us, these, these uh, preconceived ideas of who people are and what you might expect from them, whether we want to be involved with them or not. Anne Lamott says something that caught my attention. She said, you can safely assume you created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the people you do. <laughs> why Why are we there? Why do we live there? Why did I bring all this up? Because first impressions, false first impressions, is basically the topic that James turns to in chapter 2. So please find a Bible or follow along on the screen. And let's read from James chapter 2. We must resist the natural tendencies of our flesh, Natural tendencies are to prejudge, to have preferences, to act favorably towards some and not so favorably towards other. Let's read from James. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, Here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil motives or thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin or con- and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever stu- uh, keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, let's break this down just a little bit. Verses 1 through 4. James gives us this example of of the preferential treatment of a rich man and discounting the importance of a poor man. Talking about people coming into the service, how do you respond to them? How often we live by first impressions in the utter foolishness of giving preferential treatment to some people while disregarding others. This, this is crazy that, that this happens almost automatically. We don't have to think about it. It's just we respond. We see somebody, we respond. God's Word says that this favoritism must not be If we do this, we have made distinctions between people that are not right to make. We're inaccurate. It's not our place. We have become, in fact, he says, unjust judges with evil thoughts, judging people whom we have no right to judge. And the evil thoughts that we're judging with are really our motives, evil motives. And what is the motive? To promote ourselves in some way, to promote our own well-being. A rich person might be able to do something for me. Poor man can't. And so the decision is made, I'll give preference to the rich man, but not to the poor man. James 2, 5-7, James asks this, why do we give preference to the rich and discount the poor? In other words, he's saying, don't you remember how the rich often have mistreated you and taken advantage of you? What threat is the poor man to you? Why would you not give him your time? What harm can he do to you? Why do we favor rich people who typically don't care about God, the God that we say is important to us. James is saying this preferential treatment doesn't even make sense. Why would we do this? You know, We buy into a system that doesn't even carry weight, that doesn't even make things happen the way they should happen. So he questions the whole thing. And then he gets right down to the heart of it, in verse 8. He says to make things really simple, I'll just throw it out there, I'll make it really simple, obey the royal law, love your neighbors yourself. If you would do that, everything would be fine. Treat others the way you want to be treated, and you're going to be much better off. You may not think favoritism is a big deal, but it is breaking God's law. And so he goes into this thing, you know, if you break one point of the law, you've broken the whole law. If you don't commit murder, but you have committed adultery, you've broken the law. If you haven't committed adultery, you haven't committed murder, and you have favored one person over another based on what they look like, how they acted... You've broken the entire law. This Old Testament law, love your neighbor as yourself, is reverberated no less than seven times in the New Testament, often from the mouth of Jesus. And then finally, verses 12 and 13 of our text. Remember how you're going to be judged by God, and then choose your speech and actions accordingly. Condemnation without mercy is going to be shown to anyone who condemns other people and refuses to offer mercy to them. But mercy wins out over judgment and condemnation. Mercy is what God wants. God wants us to love as he loves. Now Jesus said basically the same thing in Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In fact, he said, remember in the model prayers, he's finishing that, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He says, For if you forgive men their sins, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to other, uh, forgive others, then God will no longer forgive you. James' encouragement to love our neighbors as we love ourselves brings up a very natural question then. Who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Is it that guy that lives next to you that you have a little trouble relating to? Is it the person in the, in the cubicle next to you at work? Is it, is it the student in the seat that sits next to you in your English class? You know, is it the person that you, you got somehow hooked up on this ball team together with and you're not sure whether you really like being around that individual or not? Who is our neighbor? That's a good question. It's a question that Jesus answered pretty directly, isn't it? Remember somebody asked him one time, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told them the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that parable? Story of the man that's leaving, he's going down uh, along the, the road to Jericho, and he's attacked by robbers, and they beat him within an inch of his life, and leaving by the side of the road, he's lost everything, he's bleeding to death, and, and other people come by. There's a priest that comes by and realizes... This is a gory mess. I don't have time for this. and crosses by. And a Levite, teacher of the law, comes and does the same thing. He says, forget it. Somebody else will have to take care of this guy. I don't really care about him. I've got other things to do. But then the Samaritan comes along. His enemy, his bitter enemy, comes along, sees him, and with compassion stops. and Takes care of his needs, even at possible threat to his own life. And then brings him uh, to a, a place where he can be taken care of. And he comes back and he says... If you owe anything else, yeah, I'll pay that too. I want this guy to be taken care of. Now, in case we have trouble identifying with Jesus' uh, portrayal of Jews and Samaritans, Graham Pocket gave us a couple of contemporary parables like this. The parable of the good Muslim. A Jew is going from Jerusalem to the Gaza Strip. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A rabbi happened to be going down the same road, but when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, and he passed by the other side. But a Muslim came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he gave the man first aid, dressed his wounds, stopped the bleeding and took him to a nearby hospital and said, when I return, I'll pay for any extra expenses you may have. Or even better, the parable of the good biker. Ever hear that one? A businessman was going down from Manhattan Island to Newark when he was mugged. He was robbed, beaten severely, and left in the gutter, half dead. A Baptist preacher happened to be going down the same road. Well, he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Muslim passed by on the other side of the road, ignoring him, But a huge tattooed biker saw the man and took pity on him. He made him comfortable and called an ambulance. He then followed it to the hospital. Look after him, he told the hospital staff, and when I return, I will pay any extra expense you may have incurred. Jesus followed up this parable with a question. Which of these people was a neighbor to the man who had been beaten? The answer was obvious. He says the man who had compassion on him. Jesus said... Go and do like that. Go and treat other people like that. Now probably all of us know the royal law. I remember learning it as a boy from my parents. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or maybe we prefer its cousin, which my parents also taught me. They did say it was a cousin, but they said this is a similar idea. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Remember that one? How you want to be treated, that's how you treat someone else. If you want to be given a chance, give people a chance. If you want to be treated kindly or fairly or justly, that's how you treat other people. Love other people the way you want to be loved, the way you do love yourself. This whole discussion came up when Jesus was asked a question, what is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus said, well... Really, there's two. The first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Obviously, if we would just learn to love God and love people like this, everything would change, wouldn't it? If we would learn to listen to God and love God and honor God with our lives, how things would dramatically change. If we could learn to love each other with this kind of love, the love that God first showed us, wouldn't that just change everything? Most of the strife, much of the, the prejudice, the racism, the abuse in our world would end if we would love one another as God tells us to. You know, our country is going through a lot right now, isn't it? It's hard to listen to the news. It's hard to read the, the paper, to look online at, at, at news events that are happening because there's so much strife, so much unrest, so many groups pitted against each other. In our daily news right now is a political group that's called Black Lives Matter. And we see that a lot. And this is the same group that was leading a peaceful demonstration in Dallas when a lone gunman opened fire on the policemen and killed five of them. Black Lives Matter was there to do something good, to protest the killing of young black men by police officers, calling attention to the fact that the number of these incidents has been increasing. But they were going to do that in a peaceful way until somebody else resorted to violence and it it became this ugly, ugly, unspeakable mess. It was a senseless tragedy. But it shows us how far our nation has yet to go in healing these racial divides. We we are in a national crisis right now. Racial relations have not gotten any better even though we have a black president. You know I, I I didn't vote for Barack Obama, but I hoped I hoped that as he was elected it meant our nation's gotten a little better. We could elect a black president now. Uh, it it was a you know the whole setup was different than that but I was hoping it meant something was moving in the right direction that that maybe some of these racial things were were starting to be less than they used to be less pronounced less violent less difficult to deal with but the last eight years I haven't seen that happening Have you you know if anything maybe we're more polarized than ever if anything maybe there's more animosity more more discord. More uh, unrest between racial and ethnic groups than we've seen in a long time. The Word of God's teaching today shows, however, that the solution of this problem is not going to happen politically. It's not going to happen because of political groups. It's going to happen because of the Spirit of God. It's not going to be happening across a whole nation or through a huge segment of our population. It's going to be happening individually in individual hearts. And that's where the healing has to come. Black lives matter is right. The lives of black people matter as much as white people or red people or yellow people or any color you want to name. All lives matter, and God has already said that. But we need to ask, what's in your heart and mine? There's something yet of prejudice and racism that's still lingering there. category that James draws attention to in our text this morning is the category of rich and poor, isn't it? But he could have named a lot of other categories. It just happened to be a hot button for them. happened to be something he observed maybe in the churches of that day. It's still around. But we could substitute any categories that we wanted to here. Any category we wish. Whichever one is the one we tend to group people according to. You pick your own categories, okay? We'll give you the chance to do that. It could be male and female, or Jews and Gentiles, or Republicans and Democrats, or legal citizens and illegal aliens, or or black and white, or winners and losers, or Christians and non-Christians, or gay and straight, or young and old, or haves and have-nots, or or, or policy, uh, police and ordinary citizens. As is, is you know, some people tried to make this big deal down in Dallas. This list could just go on and on, couldn't And each one of our hearts has a list of categories. Each one of us has some things that, that are a hot button for us. And when we see someone, it brings up, it calls out of us something that's not very pretty. Even if we don't want to admit that. Some of that's still there. And all my life... I have hoped to get rid of that stuff. And bit by bit, I think God is starting to create a new heart in me. But it's not all fixed yet. Is yours. Prejudice is feeling somehow that that some people who look, think, or act like us are somehow better or more valuable than people who do not. Prejudice is is categorizing people according to those that we like, who like what we like and and those who don't. And you know we because we're comfortable with one set of people we're uncomfortable with others and and prejudice makes that line says, there's a separation and I'm going to treat you differently cuz you don't fit in this other group. And even it's, it's kind of subconscious if it's not intentional it's still there. And even the church is not immune to this propensity to divide, is it? And you know, churches divide over the silliest things. We laugh about the color of carpet. You know, they're choosing carpet, what chairs to get, or, you know, how to do their sound system, or what they're going to offer in their worship service. Is it going to be contemporary, traditional? You know, all these different things that churches are divided over. How are we going to treat women in the church? What are we going to do about gays in our, in our country? What are we going to do about abortion? And churches divide over so many different issues, some of them valid, some not. But there is this something inside of us, this selfish nature that says, I want to divide. I don't want to unite. I want people I'm comfortable with, not people I'm uncomfortable with. And so when the Word of God says, Love our neighbors as ourselves, all of them, it's tough. So here we have all these categories. Black and white, winners and losers, haves and have-nots, so on. And what does God think about them? Well, God says, I don't care about those. Who does God love? God loves everybody. God plays no favorites. Romans 2.11 says, for God does not show favoritism. Jesus said in Matthew 6.45, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's no difference might be the worst person on the face of the earth. God still takes care of you with rain and sunshine and a way to make a living. Peter said in Acts 10, after God had showed him that God accepted a Gentile named Cornelius and his family and brought him into the church, Peter said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Acts 10, 34, and 35. God doesn't play favorites. Anybody who chooses to believe in God, no matter their skin color, their social class, their ethnicity, their nationality, or any other distinction we humans place on people, God accepts them. And this may bug us. This may bother us. Why does God accept those people? We may wish we could rule out some classes, some races, but guess what? That's not our place. God does that. God chooses. What does John 3.16 say? You know, God so loved the world. No exceptions. My preacher friend Ben Kacharis tweeted this week, he says, Love everybody all the time and start with the people who creep you out. <laughs> I thought it was pretty neat. Love everybody all the time. And make sure you start with the people who creep you out. I thought that's that's pretty good. People that make you most uncomfortable, start there. Because that's where the hang-up is. That's where the problem is. That's where you, you say, wait a minute. They're not my neighbor. I don't have anything like them. I have no feelings for them. Jonah was a prophet from God, called to preach in the foreign city of Nineveh. Jonah didn't want these enemies of his to repent, to be forgiven by God, so he tried to run from God. And as he did so, he was swallowed by a giant fish, wasn't he? The third day after Jonah had repented and prayed to God, he was vomited out on the dry ground. And he says, okay, I got it, God, I'm going to Nineveh. I got this figured out. So he went there and he warned people about God's judgment. And they repented. And God blessed the city rather than destroying it. And Jonah learned to his dismay that God would forgive even a heathen city if its people were sorry for their sins. God wanted to show mercy to them, not judgment and condemnation. And Jonah was angry. Jonah was upset because his enemies repented. And we're saved. And so at the very end of that book, God took Jonah to task for his rotten attitude. Read the book of Jonah sometime. Why? Because we all need to learn what Jonah needed to learn. God loves everybody, doesn't he? God loves every person. The most vile, immoral person you could ever find—the person that you would last choose to be in connection with, to have any relationship with, even know, to meet—that person God loves. And and Peter tells us He wants all people, everyone, to come to repentance and to put their faith in His Son Jesus, who can save them from their sins. We need to see people as God sees them. Anybody have a pair of sunglasses in your pocket today, your purse? Nancy, thank you. Let me borrow that from you. Oh, I don't care whether they're clean or not. Okay, so now I've got on Nancy's sunglasses. Well, that helps with that sun out of there, but I can't really see you very well. I I can't see, you know, what you look like really. I can't distinguish facial features and so on because of the darkness of these lenses. If I take them off and put these on, whoa, that makes makes a big difference. I can see a lot better than I did before. Sunglasses are like when we're looking at people through the world's eyes. Pride, prejudice. When we look through selfish pride and prejudice, we're under the control of our foolish, fleshly nature. But when we put on clear glasses, we're under the control of God's Spirit. We can see people as God sees them. When the Spirit is the filter, the, the one through whom we're looking at people, it changes everything. We see that person now with the beauty and the value that God places on them. So different. I'll get these back to you in a minute. We need to take the world's sunglasses off and see things through God's eyes of love. Now, are there any prejudices left in you and me? Jane and I made a trip to uh, uh, Michigan before we came back from Indiana. Let's go to the next slide there, Adam, please. And we were walking through South Haven, Michigan. Any of you ever been there on Lake Michigan? Beautiful little town. Go out on this boardwalk right to kind of a double lighthouse thing out there. It's a really, really neat place to visit. We're walking through town, looking at all these different shops. Jane's kind of favorite thing to do, and I'm tagging along, you know, just being a good husband. I do that every once in a while. And we found this huge, inside of this, this shop was this huge billboard kind of thing, big chalkboard. And it said, before I die. And it said, go ahead, fill in whatever you want. It was kind of interesting to see what people, before I die, I want to go skydiving. Before I die... I want to see every animal before I die. Uh, I want to climb a, a volcano in Chile. But this is different things that people come up with. But some of them were really profound. And I got thinking, what do I want to do before I die? What do you want to do before you die? What, what do you hope will happen? What do you hope will change? The first sermon I ever preached I preached when I was 17 years old. I was in my home church in Largo, Florida. So I know what you've been through. As a teenager, to preach to the congregation for the first time. Teens were in charge of the whole service. Sunday night. I got to choose my own topic. And I thought often, why did I choose the topic I chose? I chose to preach about racial prejudice. That was a heavy duty topic. 19... Seventy-one, Largo, Florida. Whew. It was hot. I mean, that, that strife between races was hot. Why did I preach it? Because I looked around my church. It was about 30 years old, and there were only white people there. Church was running a 1,000 people, only white people there. I went to school in Largo, Florida, after moving there two years before that from Indiana, where there were, two or three token black people in the whole school, to a school in Largo, Florida, where it was about 50-50, half black, half white, big shock to my system, but I found out that even though I never really knew what black people looked like or acted like, they're really not different than me. I had a lot of the same dreams, a lot of the same ideas, a lot of the same relationships and their families and desires for life and Pretty much the same. Skin color is different, but we're we're very similar. And I, I was kind of shocked by that. I go to church and there's this dividing line. There's segregation. And so I preached about that. And I don't have time to, you know, really go into how the sermon went or what kind of reactions I got, which were some negative, some positive. But I want you to know something that after I preached that sermon, which was kind of a kind of a questioning critical sermon, I stopped and I thought, you know, you, you don't you don't change people by preaching at them, but you can change your own heart. You can change who you are by your attitude and by your willingness to let the Holy Spirit bring healing and wholeness to your life. And I have since learned to question my own heart first rather than the hearts of other people. Before I die, before I die, I want to remove every last shred of prejudice from my heart. I want to see the heart of God lived out in my life in a way that it has never been lived. It's been lived in pieces. It's been lived in part. But I want to see my reaction to anybody that God brings into my life the same way Jesus would have reacted to them. I'm not there yet. Are you? And I want to see in my life a heart that says I will not only wait for God to bring them into my life, but I will aggressively go to them. I will go to people I'm uncomfortable with, people that I would have avoided my whole life until today. And I want to love on them in a God-honoring way that gives them their best chance to come to Jesus. That, that's before I die. And that's a dream of my heart. Is it a dream of your heart? I mean, are you pretty content to just hang on to your prejudices? Are you pretty content to just leave things where they are, stay with the people you're comfortable with, go the places where you're comfortable growing and avoid the rest? Or is this heart of God who loves everyone starting to to infiltrate your heart and recreate in you a love for people that should have been there in the first place. You know, that's that's what I want you to think about today. What is in your heart? What is your prayer before you die? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, your word can be so confrontational sometimes, that your word can Touch us at a point that we've not allowed you to go before, and that in a moment like this one, you catch us, stop us dead in our tracks, and ask some really, really tough questions. For each person that's here today, Lord, I pray that they would examine their own heart in the light of your heart, in the comparison to your heart. Help us to take off those glasses that precondition us, predispose us, prejudice us toward others, away from those that are different. And fill us with your love. Fill us with your grace. Fill us with your mercy to people. For we know that it is your heart that all would come to repentance and all would find Jesus, the one true Savior of this world. We pray this in his name.